You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. It was tough. It really was tough. I'm also as a person, someone who's like a bit of a homebody. So I, I like the idea of having like a home that feels mm-hmm. like home. I don't like the feeling of like moving from one rented apartment to the other. Yeah. And I felt like I'd finally got that set up for myself in 2020. So it was tough. Those were the kind of battles that I was kind of struggling with, but it never came in the way of me deciding to make this choice for myself. I like, I knew those would be challenges. They would make me feel uncomfortable, but I also know that it's been moments where I felt very uncomfortable growth-wise, where I grew the most. Hey everyone, this is a conversation that I recorded with Trishala Pillai. She's a tech enthusiast. She spent many years in the tech ecosystem. She is the founder of Jigad and a dear friend. And ever since we both decided to move to the United States, we've been in many of the same situations um, regarding the, some of the processes involved with starting grad school across the border. And we wanted to share some of the little details that we needed to have sorted things that we believe that will help you if you are considering a similar move or are in the midst of moving abroad for school as well. We also included some five core aspects of studying abroad, which include things from finances to immigration to housing and some tips that have helped us with the process. This episode is for you if you're curious about what it's like studying in the United States as an international student. You personally want to explore life outside of your current environment and you're also drawn to experiences that grow you as a person so we hope that this conversation is fruitful that it is helpful and gives you a little bit of insight on what a move like this has felt like and looks like as well enjoy this week's episode with trishala Pillai. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Hailey, and today I am here with my dear friend, Trishala Pillai. Trishala, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to chat with you. We've had multiple conversations, like before this move, during yeah. the move, and now that we're here, it's... Um, it's incredible to be doing this. I know we're not in the same city, but it's incredible to be going on this journey with you. Uh, for the audience, Trishala is an Indian Canadian born and raised in the Middle East, and she currently lives in the United States. And over the past five years, she has contributed to building some of North America's avant-garde leading social technology startups, scale-ups with her skills in new product development, research, business strategy, and development as well. She is a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University's College of Engineering. And she explores how to tackle society's most significant challenges through integrated product development at the Integrated Innovation Institute. Trish, um, in this bio, we don't really talk about your past experiences in tech, but I'd really love for you to explore like in your origin story, uh, a little bit about, you know, the companies that you've spent time at and um, all of the kind of extracurricular activities that you were doing as well. Um, So in her spare time, Trish advises Greenhouse, which is University of Waterloo Social Innovation Discovery Lab and participates in high stakes public discourse on topics at the intersection of tech, society and culture um, at global events. And most recently she created, hosted and produced a soon to be released talk show on immigrant entrepreneurs called Newcomer Rise Up. And this is a show supported by Shopify, which you know was your former employer. So Trish, thanks for being on The Power of Why. I'm really excited to dive in with you today. 
Me too. I, I share the same sentiment and I can't wait to explore these topics together. Yeah. So if you've been listening to The Power of Why for a while, you'll know that Trish was a previous guest. So she's been here before. We've had great dialogue about like building relationships, professional development, and a lot of the things that have helped you get to where you are today. Uh, I'd love for you to to talk a little bit about your origin story again, if it's changed, <laughs> if your perspective yeah. on your past experiences have changed at all. Uh, you know, and then we'll it- go from there. It has. I was actually reflecting on our previous episode and I was listening to like snippets of it. It was really long. It was like, cause we, we had such a great conversation, but yeah. even just listening to that, I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was like, what, two years ago, two to three years at most. And I felt like I have grown so much as a person um, since then, but I've retained the same energy and passion. I don't think there's been any change in that over the past couple of years, thankfully. If anything, I think I'm more excited about the problems I'm solving because with every professional experience I've had since or personal experience, Experience. There's just more clarity in, on what I want to do and purpose and all of that. As you mentioned, I was working in Canada with many technology companies there, primarily startup, ranging from e-commerce at Shopify uh, to building custom uh, or contributing to building custom machine learning applications for enterprise companies at MyPlanet. Uh, then I had a stint for a year at an ed tech nonprofit called Rumi which was led by the former chief impact investing officer at BlackRock, uh, Tarek. So worked with the team there to help them in some capacity during the pandemic, which was a very fascinating learning experience. I learned so much about education technology at a time where both education and technology were going through massive changes with COVID and the impact of all of that. So that was my last sort of gig in, in Toronto. And right now I'm at Carnegie Mellon. And I think the the one thing that I've learned in the past two years uh, is just the power of products and how impactful a product experience or service experience can be if engineered and designed correctly and, you know, keeping ethics and morality and good design in mind. I just felt like there's so much potential in that space and I can have so much of a impact on people if I contribute to the teams that build these products. And so that's kind of what led me to Carnegie Mellon. That's really the major updates. I mean, it also, it's difficult to talk about if anything's changed because like, I feel like 2020 for me is a blur. I don't know how you feel, Naomi. It's for me, it's like 2019 and then there was 2021. 2020, like a lot of life happened, but it just, it feels like such a blur. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that. (laughs) And it's honestly, Trish, like listening to the experiences that you've had early in your career, your ability to network, build relationships. Like I'd I'd really love for this episode to be like as practical as possible because I know you're a practical person and making these movements, spending a lot of time in tech. I'm wondering you know, what was your decision making around saying, you know, I've accumulated four or five years of experience, deep experience in product and business development, doing all of these things to then saying, I want to go back to school, you know, and I want to do, do grad school in a time where something weird happened in 2020, where enrollments, like the the amount of people applying to universities in higher ed went up during that time. Um, I know this is something that you were kind of thinking about before the pandemic. So why school now? And why couldn't you kind of get these experiences in by working at other companies? Yeah, I'll be honest in sharing. I think part of it was just the conditioning I had about getting a master's degree growing up um, with a family, well, parents that really believed in education and that the more you learn, the 
the more you're able to contribute and, and feel or feel like you're contributing. And so I think that was a big looming factor where I was like, okay, you know, my parents growing up would always, we would always talk. Like, I think my sister and I were strategizing our careers with my dad and mom from the age of like 10. Those were the conversations we had. So growing up in that environment, I think we, we both knew that like getting a master's degree was kind of like a known thing. And we, we wanted that for ourselves as well. Um, and that want really grew over the past couple of years. In terms of like my decision made, making sort of criterias and how I went about it, I've always looked at myself as a student, always. And it's interesting because I, at a very young age, started doing a lot of public speaking. Um, I started doing my first round of public speaking, you know, gigs, whether it was local student events on campus to then bigger things like TEDx and then ultimately forums and conferences. It kind of had a really big like ripple effect. I didn't expect that for myself. Um, I was just, you know, curious about sharing things I'd learned with other people's in an attempt to help them. And I think at a really young age from like 2021 20, to now 27, when you accumulate speaker experience, um, I think there's this like pressure of like, wait a second, like, am I an expert now in this space? Like mm. you're often speaking on, you know, I got to a point in my speaking career where I was speaking alongside leading people with decades of experience in the, in the circles that I operated in. And so I, part of me was like, dealing with this conflict of like, okay, on, on publicly, I'm an expert on many topics, but privately and in, in the workplaces that I work in, I have so many questions like about how do I solve these things? Why are people behaving this way? Or how could this product be better? And I had no framework or method or structure to solve the problems or the questions that I had in my mind. So I felt like there was a bit of a discrepancy there. And that's, I think the moment for me, this probably happened like two or three years ago. That's when I realized, okay, with someone who, for someone who has like an undergrad degree in economics, Economics is all about broadness, you know, looking at things at a macro level. It's, it's very abstract, subjective concepts. Of course, they're rooted in like, you know, math and, and our very real world, applicable to real world. But at the same time, it's broad. You don't come out of an economics degree with like deep expertise in something. And so I, I really felt this urge of like, I need to build like skills, develop new skills that are going to help me answer some of those questions or like give me the techniques, the things in my toolkit to be able to, you know, be an effective leader and, and contribute. So I think that was really the guiding factor for me. And then of course, there's so many other things that we'll have a conversation about and uncover in terms <laughs> of like, how do you then choose and decide? Yeah. But it was, I will say like one final thought on this question, I was often asked, like when I was talking to people about, hey, you know what, I'm considering grad school. Most of the people I spoke to felt it was not a great decision. They felt, hey, you know what, you're really great at networking. You know the right people. You know how to know the right people. You are, you know, you seem intelligent. You're hardworking. Um, what are you learning in grad school that you're not learning in the workplace? And I, I would always find that response very interesting because I think if you think you know everything or that that's, you know, the depth and breadth of your learning, that's kind of concerning. I think there's so much to learn in so many different contexts. Why deprive yourself of that? So I think that was really like what I was dealing with on multiple fronts that led me to kind of do my master's now. And I will say it's a great time to be a student because there are so many problems in the world right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, not that it's opportunistic, but it is such a wonderful time to learn, be in a classroom, have conversations, question things, and at just such a critical time in, for humans around the world, especially when it comes to how that impacts our product interactions. So it's been great. Yeah. And I share a lot of the same sentiments. I'm really happy that 
we both gained experience in the field that we're going into. And that at least grounds us in our understanding of what's happening in the classroom, right? And I could speak for myself on this, but I knew going into my program that all of my professors are practitioners. They are, they run their own companies. They run their own consulting firms. They work at leading companies here in the U S they are in constant interactions with decision makers, with leaders, folks who are operationalizing like a lot of these things on the ground level. And so you know, the stuff that we're learning is not from 10 years ago, right? Like it's very relevant. It's the now now, and they're very plugged in with what's going on. And especially like if you choose like the right institution that you know has access to networks, people, resources, and you're also hardworking and you know how to, how to make the most of different opportunities. Agreed. I think the motivation you, you, you hit it on the spot, like the motivation should really be internal um, in that, Like, of course, like for me, like, you know, I grew up with parents saying you got to get a master's degree, but at the same time, I'm paying for my master's on my own. And so how do you reassure yourself of your investment if you're not, you know, because you, you are investing in your future when you choose to go to grad school, if you're funding it on your own or on someone else's dime, there's a return to it. Right. And so I think for me, like being able to say, I really want to do this and I want to learn from me and like doing that research, like you said, I, I did the same thing, Carnegie Mellon, like my professors are my adjunct professors they all work at like leading companies here and they have and they're doing it simultaneously so they're dealing with the same sort of reality of like how do we apply the knowledge to the workplace Mm -hmm. or to the real world context so Mm -hmm. i think that's really important and that's on you it is on you to do that research beforehand if you can find it online ask the questions email the admissions director speak to students who've graduated from the program reach out to alumni listed on the website look at where what the problems are solving more than roles and companies and jobs, what kind of work are they doing um, once they graduate? I think those were all the things that I leaned on. Um, this is super, I know you spoke about practical and you kind of just instigated me because I'm a very practical person. So now <laughs> I'm going to throw out something, but I kind of used like a weighted decision matrix and I'm not sure if people are familiar with this um, and it's super fresh in my head because we went through it in class today, but I basically sat down and I thought to myself, what really matters to me? in my grad school experience because everyone has different reasons. And at the time I was battling between choosing an MBA or going for a specialized master's and something that was more aligned with my interests. So I put down my criteria and some of the criteria I had on my list, I've made some notes here, was like quality of networking. So like, what are are the pool of candidates like? What's my classroom gonna be like? Um, Developing new skills was another one. I had professional development opportunities. So sometimes you can be just on a campus where all the exciting problems and challenges and funding and, and stuff, everything is being funneled to that campus. So that could be a criteria for you. And then I had like, what do I really believe even like what aligns with how I view the world. Mm-hmm. For me, it was always interdisciplinary innovation and that you can't make products without all these different disciplines and breaking the silos and all of that. And so, I mean, my, pro- my, my degree has integrated innovation in its name. You know, you need to have that conviction. What do I want to learn? And then what kind of ethos and principles does the campus have? So it's not a coincidence that I did my undergrad at University of Waterloo and now I'm doing my graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. These schools have a very similar ethos that I thrived in. And that is like leading problems 
with a, a tech first or technology enabled lens. And then basically I had those criteria. I weighted them in terms of importance to me. For me, the most important things was I gen it wasn't the networking in all honesty. Although I've, I love my classmates, I'm learning so much from them. It was like, I need to develop new skills. And right. then the third thing for me was the additional opportunities of being at such a great institution, the kind of people that will come to ask for mm -hmm. student support. Yeah. Um, and so when I kind of narrowed it down, it really narrowed down to one school, which was Carnegie Mellon. And that was the only school I applied to. And I know you talk a lot about manifesting on your podcast. So I will say I was telling people that I got into Carnegie Mellon before I even submitted my application. <laughs> so I totally like in my mind, I was like, yeah, you know, next fall, I'm going to be in Carnegie Mellon. And I had not even submitted my application. But you I think when best. you have that sense of conviction, it, it, you know, there's little that comes in your way, apart from financing, which we'll get into. Oh, oh, we will get into financing. Yeah, because <laughs> funding a, however you decide to fund it, a education here in the US is very expensive. And as I was going through the process, there were like, I worked at a DEI consulting firm, like a, a boutique consulting firm in Ottawa. And we look at every, we look at where, where does an equity lie in process? And I'm like, this process is so inequitable. Yep. Working with banks and like trying to negotiate all of these things, it's so like not a lot of people have access to this, right? And for me, thinking about what this decision could look like, um, yep. there are so many moving parts. And I know for folks who are interested in maybe doing something similar for school, for work opportunities or whatever, like Trish and I are gonna go into five different core aspects of making a move like this. Hey there, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. It's also the politics of like, cross-border politics, right? Like of Canada course. is, Toronto is closer to Pittsburgh than New York. Um, yet that's, that border changes so many things for you in that like your yeah. credit history doesn't pass over. I think there's a lot of systemic issues that make it so hard. It's funny, I had a class today where the prof was asking everyone like, where are you from? So I was like, Canada. And the prof was like, oh, I guess that can be counted as international travel it, in my mind. <laughs> In my mind, I mean, he said it in good humor. It was so funny. But in my mind, I'm like, hell yeah, that's international travel. Otherwise, I would be able to have my banking set up here a lot more easily. Um, before we get into those five core aspects that, I, that I'm really excited to talk about, when you decided or when you said, you know, I, I've already been accepted, like I'm going in fall 2021, was the actual decision difficult for you? Because I know like the whole process around making, you know, a move like this is not always easy. Um, mm -hmm. But the actual decision, really like, like the actual decision of making that move, was that the easiest part of doing all of this and starting your journey? Yeah, I think honestly, moving has always been something that just excites me. And I, I've never looked at it as like, oh God, I need to move because I've been moving ever since I was like six years old. Um, yeah. So I, I was so used to grow, uh, growing up, like, you know, we would move to a new city, new country, like every couple of years. So that never scared me. I think the difference is like, I had my family back then moving with yeah. me. So there's that sense of safety and security and psychological safety more than anything. Um, so that's the part that gets tricky for me sometimes. In my case, in Toronto, I, I was living with my boyfriend in Toronto and we, it was through the pandemic. So we were obviously so used to seeing each other all the time. And it was like, it was difficult 
to, I think, relationship-wise live apart. And so there were some yeah. things like that tied to like my relationships in my life, friends, partner, um, and close friends that I'd made in Canada, like within the last 10 years. It, I don't know. It, it, it was tough. It really was tough. I'm also as a person, someone who's like a bit of a homebody. So I, I like the idea of having like a home that feels mm -hmm. like home. I don't like the feeling of like moving from one rented apartment to the other. Yeah. And I felt like I'd finally got that set up for myself in 2020. So it was tough. Those were the kind of battles that I was kind of struggling with, but it never came in the way of me deciding to make this choice for myself. I, like I knew those would be challenges. They would make me feel uncomfortable, but I also know that it's been moments where I felt very uncomfortable growth-wise where I grew the most. And my yeah. chapter and period of time in Waterloo was really a testament to that. So I think I, I kept telling myself like if Waterloo and I was miserable when I first moved there, I was lonely, alone, didn't know a single soul in Canada with the exception of like two relatives who were like an hour away. It was difficult for me. And I keep thinking had I decided to quit, pack up my bags and go home. And my parents would always tell me that like you have the option to come home. Yeah. My life would be so different today. And I would have not lived as much life as I have in the past like 10 years after moving here. So I don't know. For me, yes, it was difficult, but it didn't stop me from, from going ultimately. And I think it's also important to have supportive relationships in your life to kind of be conducive to your growth. I have mm -hmm. a very small inner circle and Naomi knows or like, you know, there's like very s small number of like people, you and a few others that I, you know, really open up with and I'm vulnerable with. And I think it's those relationships I really lean on, the ones, the people who call me and they say, you know, no matter where you go, what you do, how often we speak to you, we're there for you. Your choice to go somewhere else to do something has no impact on our relationship. Those were literally like the exact words that my my partner told me, I think yeah. that's so important. And while it's not directly aligned with the university college, it's definitely like a huge decision making criteria. And like, just it, it's definitely a big part of like the biggest, the, the biggest, the relation, yeah. like the relationships that you have in your life are, are everything, right? And yeah. as much as you know, what school you go to, or like what company you work for, and the career that you have, and how much money you're making, all of that, like. All of those things are so replaceable, but totally. the bonds that we form with, with the, you know, the closest people are in our life, you know, you can't find that. Yeah. Anywhere. Growth, growth doesn't mean that you have to be transactional. It really doesn't mean that. And that's something I've really learned over the past couple of years. 100%. Well, Trish, are you excited <laughs> to get into the, <laughs> to get, get into, into all the top part now? <laughs> So the, the five core things that, that I had been thinking about in my head were like immigration visas. We have different immigration oh stories, yes. um, finances, banking, income, scholarships, uh, housing, mm -hmm. health, health and like health options. That's a big one. Yep. Um, and then employment, employment was another one that came up. And okay, so interesting. The so after you apply, you found out you got in, this was April, right? March, this was April. March. Yep. March. Yep. March, April. 2021 for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you're like, okay, now I got to get everything in Stop order it. to make this yeah. happen. Right. So maybe start with immigration. Oh my gosh. Stressful. <laughs> the only word that comes to mind, I will say, I think it was amplified by the fact that it was a pandemic. And yeah. at that time in April, things were still, I mean, if you're from Canada, things were still really locked down and for good reason. So there were a lot of delays, the wait period, the flexibility with, you know, scheduling appointments. Like I think a lot of those challenges were amplified. So I, I say this from that perspective, but it was tough. I think for me, so I have an Indian citizenship and there were often like visas are not an isolated kind of thing. 
it, it depends on your passport and so many other kind of factors. So for me, I had a really stressful time because my passport needed to be renewed. My visa needed to be sent. The timelines were all clashing. They were delayed. So I, I would say it was one of the most stressful months that I experienced alongside like wrapping up work and other commitments. There's just a lot of documentation that you need to put together. There's a lot of waiting more than anything else. That's about it. I don't know how different it is to your process. How, what was it like for you? Because we got a document from our school and that really yeah. kicks off the whole process, which is, I believe is the F1 document. It's, yeah, the certificate the of I-20 eligibility. The yeah. I-20. Oh, the I-20. The I-20 is your ticket in pretty much. Yes, and so much. for for, you know, our Canadian folks who are thinking about studying in the U.S., obviously this is very specific to that relationship. It was, I know, Trish, once you got your I-20 and to get your I-20, you need to like give proof that you can basically afford and sustain yourself while you're living in the U.S. If you uh, are getting like financing, if you have scholarships, if your family's supporting you, you basically, this is the woes of being in New York. There's always (laughs) woes. I kind of like it. It adds, it adds to the ambience. Love it. (laughs) Um, basically support that that you can you know sustain yourself while you're here studying in the U.S. and a bunch of other like small things that you need to put together. And yeah, that's difficult to do because you so proof of financial statements is not something that you can spin up like in a day. It's something you need to really. Yeah. And of course, they're not they're not looking for like the details, and it can change between the time of submission and when you actually get to campus. But I don't know. For me, like it was it was like conversations needed to be had with you know my parents to discuss like okay, how are we gonna fund this and what does it look like and what are the you know so I think there's a lot you need to figure out almost before you even get your visa exactly um the other frustrating piece is like the software the websites are very outdated so to fill in those application forms all of that scheduling for me I don't know what it was like for you Naomi and if you had to go for an in-person appointment but scheduling was a nightmare I think at that time they were only taking urgent appointments and they had very limited slots and Mm. I needed to be on campus Yeah. yeah, I needed to be on campus August 20th and the earliest appointment I could find was August 25th. Um, so wow. it was it was crazy. So I think there was a lot of things like that um, that come into play, which make it stressful. But I would still say it's, it's the least stressful part of the entire process. Yeah, I think once, um, you, once you have your I-20, like for, okay, so for Canadians who are wanting to be in the U.S., your I-20 is, is what you need at the border, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like Trish had to go to the embassy and do an interview. And they basically ask you, like, what are your intentions for, for wanting to study in the U.S.? Do you plan on coming back? Blah, blah, blah. And um, you need to and- answer that question carefully as well. You do. You do. Um, Otherwise, and, they'll probably... Yeah. Yeah, your intent needs to be to come back to your home country and and apply your skills. So there there is that caveat to it as well. You know, you you want to be share what you're doing, be transparent, and have like um, an answer honestly at that time. I think your answers can always change. Nobody knows what happens in the future, but for the interview itself, they ask you you know some very simple questions, and the interview was actually pretty quick, which I appreciated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they're trying to process things as fast as possible, right? Yeah. yeah, if you're if you have a Canadian passport, whatever, then you just take your I twenty to the border, and at the border they'll convert that one into an F one visa. Oh, that's awesome! And <laughs> they ask you some questions at the border, but they pretty much stamp that, and that's your way in. I know we kind of like touched on the finance piece. If you are going to be funding this through a loan, having those appointments early with 
the bank, like, or even OSAP is something that's available to folks who are in Ontario. Although if you're not studying in Ontario, they give you a, you, you, you're not eligible for like the full funding that you would have if you were at an institution in Canada or in Ontario specifically. And so that's a little bit of things that you could do. There's scholarship opportunities that you could search up as well. You know, Um, generally what I found for financing is that there are a lot more options for programs that are sort of clearly defined. So for an MBA degree, there are, you know, fellowships and scholarships and a lot of grants um, because people know what an MBA is. It's a program that's existed for years, but programs like the ones we're in, right? They're new programs made for the 21st century. And so how do you like, and for today's problems, right? So when it's so new and novel, how are you able to predict the individual's earning potential once they graduate or where they've worked? Like my program has only been around for a couple of years, so they don't have enough data um, to get or attract that level of funding. So I think that's something to keep in mind if funding is important to you. Um, Funding also, going back to my complicated decision matrix I spoke about earlier, affordability was a huge one for me. I wanted to be able to graduate comfortably from my degree, knowing Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be in years and years of debt. um, And it's a great return for the skills that I'm developing. If I had to pay like, you know, 200, 300K for an MBA, but I felt at the end of that process that I I didn't grow much. And maybe I met a few people, but there are new ways to meet people like podcasts and LinkedIn. And, you know, I I would not be so assured in my decision to go to school. But I think that's also a huge factor to keep in mind. Can you realistically and comfortably afford this program? Um, Financial leverage is a thing. You can't really advance or, you know, live life or grow differently if you don't accept financial leverage at periods of time. Sometimes you need to take a loan to do a certain thing or to even maybe accumulate more wealth down the line. And that's a concept that's known and, and important to address as well. But within bounds, you know, it it still needs to be not a stretch, I feel at least. Yeah. And I think that just goes back to your individual risk tolerance and like what you're willing to understand. But with that research, right. And it's so funny because even when we talk about, this is a side conversation, but even when we talk about investing, when you talk to people who don't invest at all, the first things that always come out of their mouth is, wow, that sounds risky. Like, can't you lose all of your money? But the more, when you talk to investors, this is like the safest thing that you could do, right? Because it's that research that pretty much underlines how you make decisions. Um, Yes, there are risks involved, but like, what is the risk of not taking any action? And so I think like when you're deciding your program, when you're deciding on like, okay, what skills are in demand in today's workforce, whether you want to work for a company, whether you want to start your own business, these are all of the things that are going to be involved in in your decision making, right? And Mm -hmm. Trish, you talked to, you made such a really good visual around what that weighted decision making framework look like. I will Um, say like private and public schools will also differ a lot in the US in terms of like the scholarships available to you. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, Generally, there are a lot of external scholarships that you could apply to, but it's like throwing an application in the water and expecting to see it rise to the top. It's very competitive. So it's it's almost like putting something in the black box and never hearing about it again. Um, That being said, there are, you know, lots out there and, and unconventional sort of funding opportunities. There's a lot of private loan institutions that's personally what I'm using right now, whether it's a Prodigy, a Sally Mae, Discover Financial, even like up and coming fintech companies that are really working on this problem of making graduate school uh, financing accessible. There are alternate options today, but it still remains a huge 
sort of challenge, mm-hmm. yeah. especially in and the absence of a social security number. <laughs> the realities. Yeah. And it's, I've listened to a couple, like there are a couple of things that you can go online, whether they're books or um, like YouTube videos, podcasts about the economics of higher education. And like, you are not under understating like how mm-hmm. big of a problem this is. And considering like for a lot of, I'm not speaking about our institutions or the programs that we're in specifically, because mine is also new, like relatively mm-hmm. new. Education is like one of the highest margin product products yeah. out there. And it's like, I have the numbers here. In the last 40 years, tuition has skyrocketed 1400%, right? And if the, the, the product itself hasn't evolved that much over the years, like how do you in your brain justify um, paying for, paying this large amount of money for um, for a product or an experience or a service. And so, you know, part of what Trish, you mentioned earlier around being comfortable, like at the end of this was something that I also considered. And um, like, I'm financing a lot of this on my own too. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not easy, but running the numbers of like what that would look like every month. Okay. Yeah. Instead of trying you to, need to have a plan hundred percent, like there yeah. needs to be, you can't just, um, you know, have a sum of money through a loan or any other external source, um, or your own savings for that matter, and not be in track of on, on top of sort of like your spend, what's coming in and what's going yeah. out, mm-hmm. um, and specifically what's going out. Cause when you're a student, not a lot is coming in. Um, so unless you're doing like part-time jobs and, and things yeah. like that, but I think it's very important to have, you know, um, get comfortable with, with looking at more expenses than income if you are more focused on school and being a full-time student. If you're um, a full-time and, student, yeah. Yeah, and be on top, get those monthly payments. Like if you're doing monthly interest payments in school, you know, make sure they're on time, there's no delays, automate them as much as you can through the system itself. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff is very important in building a good credit history here, um, which really dictates financially your future when it comes to borrowing and spending in this country. So I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I agree. And okay, we can move into to finance because we talked a little bit about it. Though, if you're in Canada, there are banks that operate on both. Like one of our, you know, our major banks in Canada, I won't name them here, but a lot of them do have, they do have locations, they do have subsidiaries here in the US. Mm-hmm. And so there are ways to do like cross-border banking, for example, of, but, you know, having a bank account and then being able to open it up using your Canadian credit history mm-hmm. and, and get like a, a US debit card, a US credit card. So I would just have those conversations as early as possible if it's yeah. something you're considering. Another thing that I was curious was about housing and like, you know, what you're paying in rent, like what does that typically include? Um, Yeah, housing is a big one for me. I love my houses and like home. I like, I like homes. So I... I had an interesting way of thinking about housing. So for me, I think um, it's also very different when you're an undergrad versus graduate uh, school. I don't know. For me personally, I think the what I expected from my living situation in undergrad is very different to what I expect and, and all, honestly accept as a graduate student. I think that for me, like one thing I've learned over the past couple of years is like, my home is a reflection of my state of mind. Like I need it a certain way. I also, like I have certain preferences that honestly make me more productive, efficient, happy, effective. Um, and in the absence of that, I think grad school can be really different and challenging for me. So I knew going into this experience that housing was not an area I was going to, you know, for lack of a better term, like 
like budget around too much or, 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 or cheap out on, let's say. Um, mm. It was something that I had always known would be probably one of my higher expenses. I don't really drink a lot of alcohol. I don't have a lot of, um, you know, expenses. Uh, my biggest expense has always been like the rent of the apartment. Uh, and so I kind of knew that going in. And then, like you said, going to your point on planning and budgeting, I budgeted around that. Um, so for me, it was really important, like the criteria is that was like walking distance or, you know, like a 10 minute bus ride to campus. I think that's really important to consider in the US. Um, like, how can you get around the safety of the neighborhood is huge in some cities in the US, like pocketed neighborhoods uh, can have very different safety levels. So you want to make sure you're in a safe area. Also, the quality of life in that, like, what are the things that matter to you when it comes to your home? And for me, that was, I like a really clean apartment, as I'm sure most people do. But I was also very cognizant of the fact that my program is very intense in terms of the work hours and, and like classes and all of that. Um, so I've managed to find an apartment in Pittsburgh that actually has like weekly house cleaning included in the rent. And so I think as for students generally, I, and I'm curious to get your perspective on this, Naomi, in New York, there are a range of options I find in the U.S. Um, that sit, and in Canada as well, that sit on a spectrum of like, affordable, gets the job done, you have a place to sleep, you have the basic amenities to very convenient, makes my life easy, takes care of half the stresses that I don't need to think about. And you can pick where you want to be in, in that spectrum. And I think that's really great. Um, but it does take a lot of budgeting, <laughs> I will say. But the process of getting housing set up was, for me, honestly, one of the easiest pieces. A lot of the realtors were doing virtual apartment tours, which was great. Yeah. I had to submit, you know, references from previous landlords, which was also easy to arrange for me. There was also some documentation that I think one of the challenges was like to set up hydro and some of the amenities, the companies needed social security numbers. And I didn't have one. And so that was challenging, mm -hmm. figuring out, okay, what can I submit in, in lieu of that to get my hydro set up? That was really the maximum sort of challenge that I faced. Um, but I'm curious, New York is a very different city, much bigger, different ranges of apartments. I'm curious to get your perspective. Oh, I'm sure there are some of those. Like, I absolutely love the, the apartment that you chose and the services that they have available too. I'm sure New York has this. I actually, similar New York to you. much more expensive than Pittsburgh, so... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd be I'd be okay to share like what I'm paying in terms of rent like and that's the other thing like if you're coming here for school I would also look at the options that are available through your university. Yeah, and grad so, school housing. Yes. Yeah. And there were there were a lot of resources on the Columbia website that I was able to go through and see like, do I want to live on campus? Do I want to live off campus? And if I decided to live off campus, there were some recommendations um, through the school that were made as well of spots mm -hmm. that were really close that were probably like more affordable for students as totally. well. And yeah. so I like to live on campus. It's very competitive, like the amount yeah. of people that are applying. So as soon as this was made available to me and I knew it was an option, I was like ready at the time that it opened. Yeah. I applied. Um, I got it. Takes, in. It I takes was, a lot of planning. Like you have to have those dates yeah. in your calendar. Otherwise, it's a very yeah. first come first serve basis. Yeah. If anybody wants to, like, I, I also created like Excel spreadsheets of everything that needed to be done in mm -hmm. all of these different areas, what the deadline was, what's my progress. Did I follow up with oh my people? God. Right? This is like, like literally how I approached it. I had like a notion, multiple notion docs and pages <laughs> yes. at like literally my whole CMU plan, move to move to America plan was all organized on notion. It was so, so many little pieces, so many little pieces. Another thing you have tied to housing is like thinking really critically about 
do I need a roommate? Um, like, will yeah. the sharing of the costs, that's great on one hand, but how is that going to influence my experience in school? Like, like really think that through critically. I think grad school is a very interesting um, experience, especially I find the, the programs are much more intimate. Your classes are way smaller yeah. than they are in undergrad. So, you know, does it make sense for you to room with someone in your program if it's a very collaborative team-based course and you're, you might be having, you know, conflict, healthy conflict, but then have to come home and, you know, be in the same environment? I think those are those are really important questions to to ask yourself do you feel like you need separation from school when you come home for me that's very important when i come to my home regardless of where it is like i need to feel that separation and living alone does that for me so i think that's mm -hmm. important to to ask yourself like what how do you react to that and do you yeah. like having a roommate because you're new to a city and you want to go out and you want to meet their friends and that's also yeah. a lovely situation so but it's it's yeah. two choices you can make it's a bit of a risk because you don't know who you're going to be partnered with right yeah. and so the folks that i i have to say i got real lucky in that i have two roommates um it's very much like a typical new york apartment um we all have our own space lock and key on our doors like it's very much like that we have like laundry like that's a huge thing in, in New York as well of like having laundry in your building and having that accessible to you there are a lot of laundromats all around the city so a lot of people like you have to kind of travel to yeah to, to clean your stuff but I lucked out with two really focused PhD students and awesome. um, it's been really nice originally I'd, I'd wanted, I wanted to live on my own, but I would say like, it was, it was nice to be matched with people that were reliable. There's not yeah. any, there isn't any conflict I'm probably all those or surely very interesting, like working on really cool things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I pay about 1300 for rent, 1300 USD. And that's including everything, internet, utilities, um, that's amazing. hydro, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, whole. I pay around like 1540. But keep in mind, Pittsburgh is way cheaper than New York. So yeah. um, 1540. And that includes like, it, it's actually this new community based living model. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the place that I live. It includes, you know, community events, you know, um, there's an app where we can all like ask our neighbors for things. And like, it's it's a very, a very social building, I would say, but it's cleaned every week, which I love, uh, very central and just, you know, beautiful amenities and everything. So so and yeah, that's so not that expensive, Trish. That's like, it's really not considering it includes great, my yeah. seriously, it includes my internet as well. And basically, the only thing I'm paying for is like my utilities. So it's when I actually when when you do the math, you'll notice, and you should do the math on like every living option you have. Maybe this place the rent is cheaper, but what if your commute is going to cost you something? What if you're right. probably going to have to take a lot of Ubers if, if it's like a late night course and there isn't a bus available? Or, you know, what yeah. if the supermarket is far? A lot of costs can add up. And so me, for me, when I did the math, I was like, this place is furnished, so I don't need to spend any money on furniture. And also the cost of assembling that furniture in terms of time gone, you know, I don't need to do that. It's very close to campus, so I never take Ubers. I'm always taking the bus or walking. So does living in a particular place, even though rent is more expensive for your lifestyle exactly does it does it mm -hmm. generally actually amount to the same thing as another cheaper option um like what is the net value of it i think is very important yeah huge and transportation i yeah. realize is really expensive i live two minutes away from school i finish class at 10 p.m two nights a week and so like i'm i'm at home like in a second right and so yeah. all of these things definitely factor into it. And you mentioned earlier in terms of looking at your expenses, we talked a little bit about budgeting. And then also like, I know you're in school full time. So what has that 
<laughs> what has that adjustment been like for you to be working in a different kind of way? Yeah. I feel a huge sense of like freedom that I think you can you only really experience at least for me I only experience it as a student. I feel like when you're a student in fact one of my classmates um we were in a lecture and the professor said something about you know homework and there are no mistakes and one of my classmates she said she said to him yeah there are no mistakes we're in school it's just all practice and i was like that's exactly the beauty of being in school like university gives you this like a an environment where you can make mistakes you can ask questions intelligent and silly questions there's such a sense of abundance so i think for me because i always crave that and in environments where that doesn't exist i create it for myself that was a very natural adjustment for me i was like yes like i'm back in an environment an optimal ideal environment which is very different to the workplace um no matter how you know free you try to be in the workplace there are constraints and sometimes for good reason as well I, I really enjoyed that adjustment of like going back into just like instigating your curiosity and like, you know, fueling it. Um, I think what was challenging was like the process piece, like being a student, yes, you have like assignments and deadlines, but your free time, it's really up to you, like how you structure your day yeah. and like how you use it. And even like in team, my program is very heavy on teamwork. And coming from like a corporate background, like I'm very like output focused, like efficiency of the meetings, right? Um, you know, get things done. Of course, I want to have fun along the way, but I, I think I take a, like I treat the output of our teamwork projects as like a deliverable that I would have for like a, a proper company with like profit yeah. on the line, risks on the line. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, a tough adjustment for me has been because I've been in roles in the past where like my work has dictated or, or fueled the growth or, or failure of a company or lack, you know, I kind of really found it very challenging to approach teamwork from the stance of like, this could go well, this could go awful. And hey, you know what? The output doesn't matter as much. It's about the process. In a lot of ways, I think that's very important to transfer to the workplace as well. So that's been a great reminder. It was difficult to adjust to a little bit, but now I think grad school is just such a great place to just like fall in love with the process again. And also just like, and surrender to the process completely. I'm taking a part in a lot of case competitions um, since I've joined yeah, Carnegie are. Mellon. Mm -hmm. and I think case competitions are like the perfect example of that. You invest so much time into a process to do something and you might not win. In fact, your chances of losing are way higher than your chances of winning. But you still put in the effort and you you go out with your team for dinner after. And I think those are the kind of like, you know, just reminders that, that school gives you. Uh, but generally, I would say it was a smooth transition. It was just, yeah, like the structure and process piece was tough. And then it's also getting rid of your ego. <laughs> so you got to like approach things from a beginner's mindset. And ego exists for all of us. If anyone claims they don't have an ego, that is not true. It's like inherently a part of human psyche. And so like, how do you manage that ego, right? When you're in a program, there are people with different levels of understanding and interest oh, yeah. and, and intellect. And you might be a subject matter expert in that particular space. But if someone else doesn't know it and they're asking, you know, a beginner's mindset sort of questions, like, how are you going to interact with them? You need to manage your ego you need to actually interact with people kindly teach people educate them inform and vice versa right there's something to yeah, learn they have something to teach you as well you're never really a subject matter expert there's always things that are changing 100%. always so i think that is also very important manage your ego very important mm -hmm. what scared you the most i think 
That's a really deep, Naomi just throwing the deep questions like <laughs> in, the, in the final couple of minutes. I think for me, it would, and I'm, I would love to hear your response too. For me, it would definitely be the fear of not enjoying my program uh, and mm-hmm. getting to Carnegie Mellon and within a couple of weeks realizing, oh no, I messed up. I chose the wrong, wrong program. It's not aligned with how I want to grow. I don't like the environment. I think that was what I was really scared of only because I think when you're funding your own education, you're just really cognizant of, you know, how you're spending your time, your money. And, you know, what I think, yeah, I think that was definitely one of my biggest fears. Another very obvious one, and I will say this because we're speaking in the context of like moving to the U.S., I think safety was a huge one for me. I, I you know, I didn't know much about Pittsburgh. I still don't know. I was actually telling you about some mishaps I've had in terms of like, you know, understanding neighborhoods and things like that. I think safety is a really big thing for me. I I find it very hard. I think most humans do. I find it very hard to operate in environments where I don't feel safe. And in the yeah. U.S., you know, it's it's such a big country. So many different types of people coexisting. And, and when you don't know much about a city, it's really uh, scary sometimes. Like you don't know if you're hanging out in the right places or where you should go to get X, Y, Z done. Like it's, it's that, that I think was something that I was kind of scared of uh, to a certain extent, I, which, yeah, like I have never thought about it in this way, but I definitely think it is something I was scared of a little bit. Mm-hmm. And especially since you're on your own, as you mentioned earlier, like for most of your life, especially, well, outside of the, your move to Canada, like yeah. you were doing that with your family and this is like, you're moving to a different country. It's a whole new experience. You're building new ties and all of that. So that is totally understandable. Yeah. And I think it was also like the feeling of like having to build from scratch. I don't know if it scared me, but it, it definitely like, like I, I know how much work and effort it took to make Canada feel, I'm not talking from like an accomplishment standpoint or work standpoint, but I know how much effort it took me to have Canada feel like home to me. And that happened after 10 years of being there. So the idea of like, I'm moving to the US, I want to build a life for myself and like, you know, have a network here, which I do, but I want to continue to build off of it. That was kind of scary a little bit. And like, poof, like it took me 10 years to feel like this city and country was home. Now, how do I like, you know, find that same sense of comfort in a new environment? It almost feels like, you know, you achieve something, you put it down, you put it like in the parking lot and then you're going on to the next thing. And it's that it can be very challenging at times as well. But I'm curious Mm -hmm. to get your thoughts. I'll sneak it in there. (laughs) I really had to think about it just in, in this moment right here. I think for me, it was around the U.S. can sometimes feel like an ocean. Mm -hmm. In Canada, it feels a lot more like my experiences. And I grew up there. I was born there. feels a lot more local. And it's, I find, has a different set of challenges. Like there's just a completely different environment here. Culturally, it's slightly different. The way that the world of work is over here, it's slightly different. And so I knew I would be coming into a place where there's a lot more people. People come from every walk of life to to build here and to create here. And so I had a little bit of insecurity around like, would I be able to handle the pressure of of operating and and really functioning and thriving here in this environment? Mm -hmm. And just like starting from scratch, as you mentioned. But I think the way that I kind of combated that was really assuring myself that there was a reason that we thought of yeah. these places to come to and to, yeah. to to build something here 
And if we had that in us, if we had this, this wild idea to do it, there's a reason why. And there's something in that, in us that knows that we have the confidence to, to make it work. And so like that mantra of like, Naomi, you'll figure it out regardless of like what happens. And obviously like, like this was my first move ever. um, Yeah, I know, which, which, and I'm so proud of you for it. That's, that's like, I don't know if I would have made this decision so easily if I wasn't accustomed to moving around as a child. So when I'm, yeah, I think that's, it takes a lot of courage to make a decision like that. Yeah, but I think we're also like stronger than we think we are. And oh my God, yes. regardless of like what comes on your path, like you will figure it out and you don't need to figure it out on your own either, right? Yeah, so I think ask it goes- for help. Oh my God, if I give people one practical tip, I yeah. struggle with this. Like ever since I was a child, when my friends would go for like after school tutoring or like have a coach or a teacher yeah. to teach them complex concepts we learned in class, like I was so defined about it. I would always fight with my parents and say, I am not going for tutoring. And, you know, I, I took a lot of pride in that. Like, no, I could do it myself. I'm self-sufficient. Then I moved to Canada, realized I had to be self-sufficient. It was a different culture, very individualistic, um, you yeah. know, pretty much set up for the individual. I'd say the U.S. is more set up for the individual than Canada. Canada still has a lot more of a community feeling. Like you said, it's, it feels very local and, you know, close uh, in some senses. But then I sort of was like, oh, I'm self-sufficient. I know how to do this. And then this move here... I've had like all sorts of realizations where I'm like, this is toxic. Like ask for help. Like being self-sufficient sounds great on a job description. And, uh, you know, it sounds great when you're applying to a job to say, hey, I can operate independently and do all of this X, Y, Z stuff. But being self-sufficient in life is not healthy. Like it's great to know that, like be, have the self-conviction that no matter what life throws at you, you will be okay. But learn to lean on others where you need to, even when you need to as well. And like take their help and don't feel like you're any less capable or competent if you do. I think that's been my biggest learning in the past couple of months. Just, you know, calling a friend and saying like, if they ask me how I'm doing, like, I'm not okay. I'm honest. having a bad day. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I don't know what to do. Like, those are things that I really struggled with um, for a while because I thought, oh my God, what if that makes me look incompetent? Or what if like, you know, what if that reduces my chance of success in this new country? And now I'm like, you yeah. know what, we're all human beings working with other human beings. And another huge realization for me has been like, no one country is the be all and end all of anyone's personal or professional life. Like, I think a lot of people who move. Thank to the you for US, saying that. Yeah, a lot of people who move to the U.S. they they come with like, and and people say this explicitly, especially international students. They come here with this mindset of like this is it. This is the American dream. Like, I want to stay here. I need to build a career here. I need to do something fantastic. But like, consider that you also have the option to just come here, build your skills and go back if you want to, or go to any other country you want in the world. Like, you're not limited to one place on the map, right? Your skills are your skills and you can apply it to any context. So I think for me, that's also been a a realization where I'm like, America is not the be all end all. Canada is not. India is not. Dubai is not. I can pick wherever I'm happy, wherever I feel like I'm contributing the most, where I feel fulfilled, where I'm surrounded by my family and friends. Those are choices for you to make, right? And I think sometimes there's so much, going back to what you said about pressure and burden, we feel like, no, 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 like I need to do this so I can retain my visa or or this company won't authorize my work sponsorship and I have to find a job within three months or three years of graduate because I have this extension on my student visa and that's my timeline. Like, that's just not a way to live your life. Like, I understand practically, you know, there were sort of timelines to keep in mind, but if things don't work in your favor, there's 
always not even a plan B, like multiple plan A's, you know, that you can pick from. It's very important to remind yourself because I will say that the legal immigration standpoint, like things here are tricky. It's also very, very volatile. You can't predict it. It's based on yeah. factors beyond your control. So in an environment like that, what do you do? You know, you have to sink or swim and you're going to swim. <laughs> So, thank yeah. you for thank you for that note because it's it, honestly it's such a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation because the one of the one of the pieces of advice actually that I got uh-huh. um, from my mentor and he's like amazing amazing human being his name is Richard mm-hmm. he said Naomi like just remember that you can make that decision and then you can always come back if you don't like it you can always come back no decision is permanent yeah. And, and there, there was that level of like taking out that, removing that pressure that this needs to work in exactly the way that you saw exactly. it working in your head and just trying it out, right? And it's like, oh, he made me reflect on all of the moments that I, that I was like, I'm just going to try this because it's something that I'm curious about. Yeah. It's something that has been on my mind lately. Totally. And as you mentioned at the top of this conversation, your life would have been so different had you decided to, to leave Canada and go back home yeah. um, because of that moment of difficulty. But it's no decision is permanent. And yeah. And mentors as well are so important. Like you should be taught. I'm not saying you need to announce it on like Facebook that you're or meta because I believe they changed their name. But I'm not saying you need to announce it on a social platform that like I'm considering grad school, but talk to people you confide in whose opinions you respect and value who've lived probably a lot more life than you have speak to them and get their perspective. I know when I was debating on school, I reached out to um, an individual in my network who is much more experienced than me, CTO of like a leading tech company in, in the Bay Area. And he told me like, Trish, you'll never get this opportunity you, or you get this opportunity rarely in life to just study and learn in abundance and not care as much about the outcomes. Because in grad school, honestly, your GPA does not matter for most grad school programs. So in that scenario, I was just like, you know what, you're right. And at the time I was contemplating between doing the nine month program um, a, mm. a nine month version of my program or the 16 month. And the nine month was framed as like, you know, if you have some work experience, you can do the nine month and then clock out, or you can do the whole 16 month. And I actually opted for the 16 month because my mentors, multiple of them told me like, you're going to get an opportunity to write a research thesis, like go for do it. That. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it's really important to like recognize that like, there's no timeline around these things. Like jobs will always come and go opportunities will always come and go. What matters is like, you need to know that like, hey, you know what, I'm good at what I do and I'm getting better at what I do every day. And so I'll get a job when I set my mind to it. And if if I need it, I think you just need to have that confidence of like the right opportunity will come to me as much as I go to it. And I think that's very important when you're navigating employment here. So Mm -hmm. amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Trish. Thank you so much. This has been such a beautiful conversation. And I think it also like captures like a lot of the before, during and after kind of thinking around Mm -hmm. what this like can practically look like for people. Um, Trish is in Pittsburgh. You could find her online. What's the best place for people to connect with you? We didn't talk at all about Jigad and like the work that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy business. to talk. 
to anyone um, who does that to me. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm always, always, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn a lot more than I am on any other social platform. Uh, so if anyone wants to reach out or talk more, I know we covered like a lot of topics at a very high level, but we're happy. I'm sure Naomi is as well. If, if her podcast is not answering all the questions because we've gone through so much, um, I'm more than happy to, to answer any questions and connect and help. Yeah. Yeah. So all the links to where you can connect with Trish will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Power of Why. We'll catch you in the next one. This was an episode of The Power of Why. You can find the show notes at powerofwhy.co. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms.